Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and the editor of top1000funds.com. I'm joined today by Professor Cameron Hepburn from Oxford University. Cameron is Professor of Environmental Economics at Oxford and Director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment, as well as, as, well as leading a number of programs on sustainability at the Oxford Martin School. Thank you for joining us, Cameron. My pleasure, Amanda. Thanks for having me. So we're certainly living in unprecedented times. How are you holding up there in the UK? Well, we're, uh, like many other countries, um, in the thick of it, certainly moving towards the peak of the COVID-19 virus, probably a few weeks away. In Oxford, um, well... The streets may be empty, but the activity is frenetic. Uh, Oxford's had a track record of developing uh, vaccines successfully uh, in other infectious disease cases, and um, we have already developed one. It's being trialled on 500 people right now. And in general, I think the whole university has been mobilised to try to... Everybody's doing their bit. I mean, I've got um, an economist in my team who's doing a study on the relationship between... COVID-19 and, and temperature so that we can learn how, how it spreads and how it's likely to spread in the coming months. Um, I'm personally with, with another one of my teams doing work on the fiscal rescue and recovery packages just with a, with a view to making sure that uh, we don't dig ourselves into a, into a climate hole as a result of um, addressing the, the coronavirus emergency. So, you know, all of us in our respective fields are hard at work here at Oxford. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not too bad. Well, they say don't, don't waste a good crisis. It seems like the uh, mantra there at Oxford as well. Yeah, well, certainly do what you can to help in times of crisis. So that, that's true. So, look, we want to have a chat today about uh, the energy sector and, and some innovation happening and, and your area of expertise and climate change and, and how to investors can respond to that. Um, You've spoken publicly about how we're at a very exciting crossroads in terms of energy innovation. And in particular, you've spoken about disruptive technologies like shale, gas, new solar, storage and carbon dioxide removal. Can you give us an update on where you think the most innovation is coming from in the energy sector and where we should be focusing our energy? Well, the fantastic thing about this particular period is that there's an awful lot, finally, of innovation coming in the energy sector from all sides, really. I mean, if if you go back a decade or two, the numbers, both in terms of money going into the space and patents and the rest of it, were pretty poor, fairly low, but actually, you know, the world finally picked, picked things up. And to answer your question, I mean, I think there's an awful lot of interest um, in further pushing down the costs of solar and wind. Uh, Everybody knows how far they've fallen, but the question is, how much further can they fall? And with the rates of innovation that we're seeing, in a lot of the detail, you know, bifacial solar, so solar that can pick up light that's reflected off the the base, possibly, you know, paint a a roof white as well to get reflected light there, or perovskite-based solar so that you can capture a, a wider range of the light spectrum. Um, and various advances in, in wind, uh, both process uh, and in floating wind, etc. So there's, there's a range of innovations in the renewable 
generation space, which are exciting and which I think mean that the costs will continue to fall. But then the other big area is you know, we've also finally got to grips with the fact that we, we need uh, short, medium and long-term storage, and in particular long-term storage of energy at scale. So you know we've had we've had the kind of first wave of innovation in batteries. Costs are coming down. The cost curve is pretty sharp, uh, and that's going to be helpful for day-night storage, um, grid stability, and so on. But the big challenges uh, left really are in the in the medium and the longer-term scale storage, and uh, there there's lots of thinking about um, you know electrolysis. So so using uh, renewable energy to produce hydrogen by sitting water. The costs there are also coming down fast because of innovation. And and then other uh, ways of using and carrying and storing that hydrogen inexpensively, for instance, uh, as ammonia or as um, some other liquid compound that effectively takes the energy in the hydrogen bond and, and puts it into a form that's easier to move around or, or just to keep sitting there for a while. So. There's an awful lot of innovation, and um, that's important because it comes at a time when we're kind of having a bit of a dress rehearsal for the the climate emergency. You know, oil prices now at uh, you know twenty to thirty dollars a barrel, even below twenty, and we've had this hit on the on the demand for oil and the supply of oil. So you know, the challenge for renewable energy to be cost competitive is a little bit greater. But, you, but that's always been, you know, the target. I mean, you can't compete with today's oil price. You've got to compete with oil and coal prices at, at their most competitive, at their lowest level. So what we're learning right now is that actually it looks like renewable energy is, is holding up. Um, and uh, from an investor point of view, the investors are looking at the sector and saying, well, that's much more attractive than, um, than having my money in fossils subject to these wild swings in commodity prices and, and other risks. So related, I guess, um, the UK and other governments around the world have committed to net zero by 2050, and yet we haven't really seen huge progress in how to get there. So from where you sit, what are you seeing in terms of green technology innovation that can leapfrog this problem and provide some viable solutions for government and investors. A, a view on the green unicorn, if you like, and, and where we should be focusing our efforts in terms of startups. Yeah, well, I think I mean I agree with you that these these plans uh, or targets around net zero are very welcome, but we obviously can't stop there. And what's um, needed is action and um, you know much more detailed blueprint, as it were. Uh, of how to get there. Now, you know, as an economist, um, your first principles uh, a response to, to this is to say, well, we're, we're not going to be able to second guess every technological development innovation is going to come. We need to create the right incentives at the economy-wide le level and then see what the private sector brings through. And that, of course, is the whole basis for a carbon price. But uh, we're also at a point now where we're running out of time and we haven't had the prices that we would need. So you, you actually do need to be making decisions uh, at the national and regional level by government, because without those decisions, we're not going to get there, as you say. So some of the decisions that uh, are needed are around technology and in particular, um, you know, the sorts of things that I was just talking about, um, blending renewable electricity generation with uh, the production of clean molecules uh, is, is a key 
you know, building block, a foundational plank of the clean energy economy. And, and you can identify absolutely vital technologies in that, in that cluster that we need to pull down in cost very rapidly. And I, I mentioned electrolysis earlier. That's clearly one of these keystone technologies, or as we've been calling it, um, perhaps inappropriately, I'm not sure, a unicorn technology in, in, by analogy to the, the so-called tech unicorns, which have uh, billion-dollar market caps. These are, these are technologies that could deliver over a billion tons of CO2 reduction. And so there's a number of those kind of keystone technologies, which once they are cheap enough, the rest of the system tips and reorients um, around a, a new uh, tech ecosystem. And, and I think we are, you know, we're getting there. there. I mean, the, the reports on alkaline, there's various different types of electrolyzers. Uh, one is the alkaline electrolyzer, that's the oldest type, but the reports are that that's really fallen quite dramatically in cost in China, which uh, is very promising. And there's an awful lot of innovation going on uh, in protein um, PEM electro electrolyzers and also in solid oxide electrolyzers as well. So there's, there's lots, lots happening. What um, what is needed at this stage is a push from government to help scale up these efforts and to build them into a coherent plan. So you know, having the, the grand net zero ambition on the one hand, that's great. Lots of innovation happening out in the private sector and in labs, that's also great. But connecting the two up together to say, right, this is you know, this is how we're going to deliver net zero heat for the whole economy uh, in the space of you know under three decades. So that sort of thing is now what's needed. So on that point, Cameron, you provide advice on energy and climate policy to government ministers in the UK, also to China, India, and Australia, as well as the OECD and the UN. What's your advice to the UK government ahead of COP26, which is scheduled for Glasgow? Well, this um, climate conference is a very important one. It follows, uh, it's, on, it's the fifth anniversary of the climate conference in Paris that got the world to agree to go well below two degrees and to um, effectively reach net zero emissions. And it's, it's the conference at which all the countries are coming together to ratchet up their ambition because it was recognised at the Paris Agreement that you know, we had this necessity, uh, ambition of getting well below two degrees. But if you added up all of the pledges from all of the countries, we were nowhere near uh, there. We were over three degrees. So, so this is the conference that's supposed to sort out that gap, or at least come a large way towards closing it. Um, and the the priorities really for this COP are to, and it's a big diplomatic exercise, but it's to go with the grain of each individual country's interests and progress uh, and to take what's happening and to just accelerate it. So key areas include um, advancing applied innovation that will you know, address the sorts of things we've just been talking about, further bringing down the cost of the clean technology systems so that they just simply outcompete fossil because there's a real prospect of that happening. We're not far off it. And in some cases, we're already there. Uh, and so there, you should you know, look out for efforts and announcements around a follow-up to the Mission Innovation Agreement on Paris on technology. That was a five-year program to double uh, R&D spending in clean energy. You might expect to see something like that uh, over a 10-year period, possibly. 
uh, agreed uh, at, the, at the next COP. Certainly that would be a, a marvellous achievement and very important. I think you can also expect to see um, progress on fleshing out those net zero commitments. I mean, we're already having um, uh, a kind of groundswell of net zero commitments from nation states, non-state actors, corporates, etc. But I think we're getting to the point where there's enough of them that we want to see flesh on the bone. Okay, how are you going to get there? Is your plan credible? What are the actions that you need to take? And that's all to the good. And then I think one of the other key kind of objectives of, of this meeting is to work on the net bit of net zero because with, um, you know, with a fair wind and a bit of good luck, we should be able to get our emissions very close to zero by 2050, but it is unlikely to be completely zero. And so we're going to need to take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, um, sadly, and that's going to require some innovation now so that we're ready uh, when the time comes. And this is not just kind of carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, on, on existing streams of CO2 that we're pumping up there. Um, it looks like, you know, unless we do significantly better than might be expected, we're going to have to be uh, using various systems, industrial and biological, to take CO2 out of the air and um, and working on those technologies now and getting some international coordination on that topic now is very important. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the work that you're doing at Oxford University, building on decades of complex system science. My understanding is you're looking at sensitive intervention points in climate change and how modest changes in the socioeconomic and political system can in fact deliver massive fast impact. So can you talk us through that and in particular where those sensitive intervention points might be? Sure, yeah, I mean this is um, uh, an area of science that uh, is gradually being brought into economic thinking you know over over decades one would have hoped that been a bit quicker but we are slowly getting there and places like the institute for new economic thinking at oxford where, where i also work have been driving this so the, the ideas are that if you've got a complex adaptive system like the climate system or like the economic system then small perturbations small deviations in or changes in one part of the landscape can trigger knock-on effects that um, deliver very significant changes to the system as a whole, especially if that system's near uh, a state of criticality. So um, in more simplistic terms, these ideas have been conveyed in the, by, by the concept of a tipping point. Um, but in more, you know, more sophisticated terms, it's, it's relates to chaos theory and um, you know, nonlinear dynamical systems. So, so that's, that's the theory. Applying it to uh, climate, what we've been observing in the past is that small and often kind of apparently unrelated changes have had big impacts on energy, food, transportation systems. They haven't always been motivated by um, climate. So, you know, if you think about the the efforts to get into space all those decades ago, that's what triggered the innovation around solar cells. And it's been a series of modest interventions 
on solar ever since that have led us now to this situation where we could conceivably power you know, every single human energy need from the sun. Uh, in fact, I mean, it'd be, a, a, as, as many of your listeners probably know, it'd be a tiny proportion of the energy that hits the earth that we would need to harness to power all of human civilization from the sun. Uh, and sticking with the, the satellite theme, I mean, if you if you slightly perturb the orbit of a satellite, then you can end up um, you know, literally millions of kilometers away from, from where you were if you hadn't turned on your thrusters. And that's, that sort of logic is how we got to the moon. So, so those uh, ideas also apply in the financial system, uh, as well as in the public uh, and, and tech systems. And in the financial system, to give you an example, if you... Uh, were to change the way auditors had to report on companies' books and balance sheets. So, for instance, rather than saying your know, oil companies are perfectly, uh, it's perfectly legit for them to book their uh, barrels of oil at $70 a barrel, and instead said, we need you to, in addition to whatever assumptions you see as business as usual, we need you to be reporting a set of books based around uh, a Paris compliance scenario. Um, where you know oil is probably more like twenty dollars a barrel, where it happens to be today, but I don't don't doubt it'll probably go up and come back down again. But you know, so so what does what does your balance sheet look like with oil at twenty dollars a barrel? So so that tweak of the auditing rules um, could shift financial market expectations, investor expectations, and I guess make people just more aware of the significance of the risk. Uh, it's still taking investors quite a long time to wake up to just how risky this sector is, you know, just how risky investments in anywhere in the coal supply chain are. Um, you know, oil and gas, you might think of as being a bit more resilient than coal, but we've seen the last few weeks just, uh, just how fragile these sectors are. So it's that sort of intervention. And you know, we've got a team of 20-odd people looking at interventions across the economy, some within finance, but others in many other areas as well. It's kind of which lawsuits uh, could, could have a big impact uh, on directors' duties and what the reasonable director is expected to do, you know, which technologies are the keystone technologies, which has just been spoken about, what, what policies could trigger copycat behavior from one national government to another, like a border carbon adjustment that would potentially deliver carbon prices all around the world. So they're the sorts of ideas we're exploring. It's really good fun. Sounds like you're having fun. I mean, this idea of complex adaptive systems is an interesting one in the context of the finance industry, which uses backward-looking data for risk modeling, and it tends to be very linear. Um, and you know maybe this latest crisis is a chance to look at look at risk and and, and modeling in a different way using more forward looking data. Have you got a comment on that yeah i think I mean I think we do need to get out of the old paradigms i mean even the concept of the black swan useful though it is to kind of wake people up to the fact that um you know not uh, things do come out of nowhere that um, doesn't really 
uh, help us to capture the fact that a lot of these distributions, you know, they're not just kind of um, nice, regular, bell-shaped distributions of potential outcomes, and nor are they even distributions with a bit of a fat tail, you know, or or, or a gamma distribution, non-normal distribution. What's going on here is that um, these in interrelationships between different parts of the economy are shifting the distribution altogether. So what seemed like a one in a hundred or a thousand or a ten thousand year event becomes the mean because you've shifted the distribution. So um, I think, you know, if, or to put it another way, perhaps a little bit less nerdy, um, if you're walking towards a cliff edge, uh, except you're walking towards it backwards, um, you're looking, looking where you've been previously walking and you're saying, well, there's no evidence of any cliff edge here. I don't see any cliff edge. And you keep walking back until you've walked off the cliff edge because you were just looking at the, looking the wrong direction. You're looking backwards. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that using backward looking data and historical data only does not tell you what you need to know, especially in a context where the system has structural breaks, you know, where there are these nonlinear dynamics in the system and it's uncomfortable because uh, in order to turn around and look forward you end up having to be a bit more speculative a bit more theoretical you have to understand the underlying uh, connectivity and the network structure of the system and you know have a harder scenario based probe of all the things that can go wrong but but if you don't do that um, you're kind of pretending that these things don't exist when in fact we know they do exist so you're going to be hurt that's the bottom line so yeah i think it's it's very important that we start doing more forward-looking work in this area so you, you've mentioned um a price on carbon a couple of times um two nobel prizes ago professor nordhaus won for his work on economic modeling and climate change and his work highlighted the balancing act between a price on carbon and economic growth. Can you slow down one without slowing down the other? Um, I'm keen to get your view on an appropriate price on carbon and what do we need to do to get an agreement around that? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the joys of a price on carbon to you know anyone who's done any economics um, should be fairly clear. They, uh, the carbon prices tackle both the supply side and the demand side at the same time. So you don't have these kind of um, major leakage problems that you have with, with some other um, policies. And um, you know, there's, there's a lot to like about them because they're neutral to different uh, technologies and approaches and processes. The challenge has always been getting one uh, at the right kind of level, and you ask what that level is. Um, I mean, the, the views will differ amongst economists here, as this is often the case, but uh, I'd say that a, a kind of mean range of an appropriate price on carbon is around the 50 to 100 US dollars a ton kind of range. Um, you know, there'll be those who will say that's way too low. Uh, it looks like we need two, three hundred dollars a ton in order to get ourselves to zero but there are also those who will say well it's far too high it's, um you know there's a lot of innovation coming down the line uh, we don't don't need prices that high and um you know if you put them in slap them in immediately that would be quite damaging to the economy um 
So, you know, I think somewhere in that $50 to $100 range is, is about right at the moment. Um, there are a number of countries around the world that have prices in that range. Um, there are certainly many, many countries who have implicit prices that are way higher than that range. I mean, it's quite remarkable what you can, um, you know, how inefficient our approach to this problem is, frankly, right now. Uh, you've got some subsidies and taxes that have implicit carbon prices of over $1,000 a ton. And people seem to like them. And others that, you know, people get very upset about that have implicit prices of $10 a ton. And I think the, the kind of bottom line here is that actually, um, you, we economists may well quote, you know, know roughly what we need to do, but actually the action here is in the politics, uh, it's in the psychology, um, it's in the kind of public acceptance of these prices, and it's in the in the way they're put into practice. And um, we've done quite a lot of work on this in the last couple of years. Uh, and if you like, I can say a lot more about it, but it, but it, but I won't go down that rabbit warren unless you unless you want to. Maybe we can link to some of your your work when we publish this. Um, my audience, Cameron's. Uh, m- largely made up of of very large institutional investors, and they're increasingly looking at the climate issue and how to incorporate that into their investment decision making. What do you think is the best way of doing that to, you know, accurately assess risks but also opportunities, and to do it in a way that is at a total portfolio level, not a kind of bottom up. Uh, risk assessment, but actually something that's more fundamental than that. What what do you think that they should be doing? Yeah, well, the place I would start at a high level is, um, I mean, we, we, we had to ask ourselves this question for the university's endowment of several billion, not huge, but um, large enough and it matters to us. And we're, what we came up with is a set of Oxford Martin principles for climate conscious investment. Uh, these are high-level set of three fairly simple principles, uh, which is to say, um, are you investing in uh, funds and in companies and in other assets where the people managing those assets or the chief executives and chairs of the companies, uh, do they actually get it? Do they understand the, the imperative to get to net zero or are they still funding lobby groups who um, you know, disagree with the with the science. Second, do they have a plan to be profitable? Uh, How is this entity making money in a world where everything is net zero emissions? So it's not enough for an oil company to say, you know, we've reduced our emissions by 50%. So the oil and the gas that we extract, we're using renewable energy to extract it. I mean, that's a, it's, well, there's a technical term for that, which I won't use, but it has the letters B and S associated with it. And I think, you know, the, the, the bottom line is what does in a world where nobody is using oil and gas because it's emitting, um, you know, how are you making money? If you don't have an answer to that question, uh, then I think investors should be pretty wary about putting their um, cash in, into that sort of company. Or, or entity, and then and then a third. These are very high-level principles, but the third principle is what, what's the plan? You know, how, how are you going to get there, uh, and when are you going to get there, and and is that a credible plan? Can we track progress? Is it the sort of thing that's a bit wishy-washy, or you know, are there numbers associated with with it so we can see 
um, you know, wh whether you're getting there. So that's a starting point. I mean, what I, what I guess I, the, the reason we have framed it that way is because there's an awful lot of investors who say, well, let me first work out the carbon footprint of my portfolio. And I'm not saying that's uh, necessarily a bad thing to do. It's just not, it's just not necessarily particularly informative uh, right now because what, what matters is that you're able to get down to zero emissions and your emissions this year uh, versus last year or this year versus your peers um, don't necessarily reveal the amount of R&D going on, the background, the, the strategy, the plan, you know, maybe that you actually have to increase emissions now in order to reduce emissions later. For instance, um, producing a lot of insulation uh, could increase emissions in the short run, but reduce emissions um, by reducing heat loss from buildings and so on. So just need to be a bit more sophisticated uh, about this than just taking a, a carbon footprint. And then in terms of the um, decision-making process, I think there's um, still a lack of awareness about just how big this is. I mean, this is a rewiring of the whole economic and, and hence also financial system. And if you're unaware of how that rewiring is likely to happen or could happen, uh, then you're probably putting money into the wrong sort of categories, or at least you're taking risks that you're probably unaware that you're even taking. So, so there's a question about uh, boards and exec committees and investment committees um, having the right level of sophisticated awareness uh, around these topics. Um, there's a huge demand for this now uh, where the Smith School and the Business School at Oxford have a number of executive education programs on sustainable finance, on leadership in a climate emergency, uh, to help to upskill capability within investment committees and boards. So, so there's those sorts of, and, and you know, other universities do too, um, uh, and there's those sorts of um, ways of which you can kind of lift the capability and hence awareness of risks and also opportunities uh, in this space. So yeah, it's a lot to think about, especially when everybody's thinking about, um, oh my God, the markets are down 20, 25% and my pension coverage is, is poor and so on. But equally at this particular point in time, um, it's, uh, you know, we've just seen what can happen with an emergency that actually all the science told you was coming and you didn't listen. And, you know, I mean, personally, I sold my equities in January because it looked at the science and thought this doesn't look too good. And it's just, it's going to be gutting if this happens again on climate. All the science telling, telling us that this is going to, it's coming at us. So listen to it, work out what you should do and act accordingly before it's too late and the market's down. You think, oh, crap, I wish I thought about that earlier. So you've certainly reminded me of the enormity of it and um, the complexity of it, Cameron. And I'm glad to hear that you're offering some executive education because I, I think that's certainly a lot that's needed there. Um, so thank you for that. Is there anything else that investors you know, sh should be reading or, or, or thinking about? I mean, what's the best way for a, a kind of non-scientist to, to get their head around this, um, you know, a, a, apart from those exec education kind of areas? 
Yeah, well, we will very shortly on the Smith School website be publishing two primers uh, on the on the science and on the implications. Um, and you know, so that that's a place to start. The idea is to you know condense and and package what are thousands of pages of dense uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change reports into a digestible format for the financial community. Um, so, and the reason we've done that is because, honestly, Amanda, I didn't have a good answer to that question. You know, because I get asked it a lot. Where, where do I go to um, to get this in a simple form? Or, or I often have a kind of conversation where 10 or 15 minutes in, somebody says, "Why? Why didn't I know this? Why doesn't everybody know this? Can you just kind of put something out there so we can um, all have access to it?" So that's what we're that's what we're doing. And I don't think, you know, from a scientist's point of view, it's, you know, the sense is this is all known. It's all, you know, we, we've known this sometimes for decades, but actually it's a matter of um, putting into a format that, um, you know, that, that is meaningful to, to your sort of community, which is why I'm here chatting with you, because I think it's very important. Um, so uh, ha happy to help and have questions listening to this. They can always get in touch with me directly at Oxford. Well, Cameron, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very, very much. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you and um, stay safe. Likewise. Thanks, Amanda. It's my pleasure.